0: Well, this summer, there was this interesting story of an ATM repairman down in Corpus Christi, Texas, who went to work on an ATM machine at a bank. And, and I didn't know this, but when you open them up, there's actually some room behind them. And, and he actually got locked behind the ATM. He was without his cell phone. It happened to be in his truck. And so he was really in a predicament that he was in a place he couldn't get out. And so he began to call for help, and nobody responded. I think, I, I think if people heard a voice coming from an ATM machine, they probably just ran away. I mean, this sounds spooky. And so he finally decided to write notes, and he would, would put them with their receipts and their deposit slips as they as process things. And someone actually got this note right here. Please help. I'm stuck in here, and I don't have... My phone, please call my boss at 210, blah, blah, blah. And someone said, you know, that sounds like it could be real. <laughs> call the number. Sure enough, the employee was fixing the ATM and was trapped inside. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I, I can think of a lot of places to be trapped inside. An ATM machine might not be too bad. I mean, I would check his pockets when he came out. But, but seriously, have you ever been in a place where you felt trapped and you couldn't get out. And it might be a a marriage that's abusive. It might be in a job that you really don't like. It might be um, addictive behaviors that just never seem to let go of you. Or maybe financial burdens that seem to crush you. Or maybe you just feel trapped by... Um, decisions you've made in the past that now have haunted you with shame and guilt. And I think all of us can identify in some respects to the feeling of being trapped without a way out. And if if I didn't describe your situation, what we're gonna be talking about today will describe all of us. Because the Bible says that we are all in a situation trapped in a place that we can't get ourselves out of. And we need the Lord to actually reach down and grab us where we are to lift us up. And that's why as we've been going through a book called Ephesians, we've been in it for several weeks. It's a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to a a church of believers in a city called Ephesus during this first century. And these believers had come out of an unchurched background. They didn't grow up going to church, didn't know anything about the Bible, found faith in Jesus, began to follow him. So Paul wrote this letter to encourage them and remind them what God had done for them, who they were in Christ, and how to live. So at the end of the first chapter, and by the way, in In the Bible times when they wrote these letters and books, they didn't have chapters and verses. So when Paul wrote a letter, it was just like a long letter. And what we talked about last week actually flows right into what we're going to talk about today because he ends the first chapter saying that we have this incomparably great power living in us that's accessible to us, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and ascended him up to heaven to sit at the right hand of God, the same power. And when you're feeling weak and you're feeling tired, that power is available to you. And he goes on to say, this power is so great it not only can lift someone as high as heaven, it can reach down to grab you where you are, in the deepest pit, in the darkest place. Jesus Christ's power can reach you and rescue you where you are. And that's the message we are going to look at today. But in order to do that, we have to go to some uncomfortable places, the dark places. And Paul reminds them where they were before they met Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about today. For some of you, it's where you were before you met Jesus. For some of you, it is where you are right now because you never, you've never given your life to Christ. And, we, and we're glad that you're here. We want you to hear and to listen to what God says, but listen to what he says to you today because this is a picture of who we all are apart from Jesus. So if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two, the first three verses. Paul says, as for you, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, in church, we often talk about being saved. But what does that mean, to be saved? To be saved means you have to be saved from something. And the fact that Jesus died on a cross to save me raises the question, what is he saving me from? Other people died on crosses. They didn't save me. What's unique about Jesus? What did he do, and what do I need to be saved from? Well, we're going to find out as we go through this some of the things that Jesus came to save us from. But being saved means I remember what I'm saved from. And it's good to go back sometimes. Just remember where he's brought you, where his grace reached down and picked you up. Because when you do that, you appreciate God more, you love Jesus more, you worship better because you're reminded of where you once were. Sometimes if you've been a Christian for 10, 20, 30 years, you start to forget. So Paul reminds them, remember where you were. And the first thing he points out is this, remember how dead you were. I need to remember how dead I was before I met Christ. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, we remember, we, we remember in the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned, God said, In that day you will surely die. But he didn't, he didn't die physically that day, but he died spiritually. And that's because death has many levels. There is a physical death, that's a result of sin. All of us will die one day physically. We can set the clock back an hour, you can set the clock back five hours. It's not going to postpone death. Death is still waiting for us somewhere down the road. We don't know when, we don't know how. But it's there. It is coming. Death is coming. It's the result of sin. And when someone dies, here's what happens. The body and the spirit separate. Materialists believe that we are all one thing, that when we die, it's all over. But, but in our faith, we believe that we actually have a physical body and we have an immaterial, invisible, spiritual body. And though the physical body can get laid in the grave, the spirit continues to live. And the Bible says that all of us will live forever in one of two places. We will live because the Spirit was made to live. We'll be clothed with a different body in the future, but we will live. And so there's a physical death, but death also affects us spiritually. And when Adam sinned, he no longer could walk side by side with God. And similarly with us, when we've sinned, we're actually separated from God. We can't hear God. We can't listen to God. We can't follow God. We don't see things from God's perspective. Things just kind of fly over our heads because we're not tuned into God. It's it's like we're not plugged in. We're not connected. There's there's no communication between the two. That's spiritual death. Now, here's the truth. People all around this world are, are alive physically, but most are dead spiritually. And so we are living in the zombie apocalypse right now. We have people that our bodies moving, but spirits are dead, and they look the same on the outside. People look the same, but they don't look the same from, to God because some are different from the inside. Some have been raised to life, uh, born again, starting to live over, a new life, connected with God, alive. A live wire is one that's connected to the power source. When you're alive, you're connected to the source of all power, which is the Lord. Now, if you, if you die physically while you're dead spiritually, it brings another level of death called eternal death. And eternal death means that there's no more chances. That's the end. It's over. And you are separated from God forever. And none of us want to experience that. And God doesn't want any of us to experience it. That's why Jesus came to give us eternal life. But that is, is death. The Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. So Paul uses the word sin, but he also uses the word transgressions. He says, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. And those are just two words that describe kind of like two sides of the same thing. A transgression means uh, literally that something is no longer upright. Something is no longer in the position it should be in. It's deviated from where it should be. And sometimes this word is translated trespass, meaning you've crossed the line. You've crossed the boundary. You're where you shouldn't be. That's a... That's a transgression a sin the word for sin means to miss the mark it's like you're shooting at a target and you fall short and so sin is falling short of God's standards God's expectations and we sin in both ways sometimes we we cross the line we say I'm going to go where God doesn't want me to go other times we say I don't want to do what God wants me to do and so there's a sin of commission the sin of omission one means there's a rebellious spirit rising up I'm going to do it anyway this other says I just I just failed I just can't be who God wants me to be. And they're both uh, measures of sin, both descriptive. Now, people will often debate where sin originates. Do we sin because we are sinners, or do we become sinners because we sin? Some of you say, I don't really care, Pastor. (laughs) And honestly, to me, it's it's a moot point. It's kind of like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Last night, I went to Sprouts, and I picked up some vegetables, picked up some eggs, picked up some meat. And when the lady was bagging, the, the, she bagged my um, chicken, the chicken breast that I bought. And then she had the eggs and she says, well, they probably ought to go over there with the chicken. They kind of belong together. I said, there we go. we got the chicken and the egg right there in the same bag. Which came first? I don't know. I just know they taste good when they're cooked. It doesn't matter to me which came first. And it really doesn't matter in, in my mind. Do I sin because I'm sinful or am I sinful because I sin? The bottom line is I sin and I'm sinful. I'm both of them. And I'm not going to blame Adam for my sin, even though it all started with him. The Bible says that, in a sense, we were in Adam when Adam sinned. All of us trace our roots back to Adam. And in a sense, I was in Adam when Adam sinned. But you know what? Every time, every time I sin, it's not Adam causing me to sin. It's me actually saying, I, I agree with Adam's choice to rebel against God. I think that was a good choice. I'm going to do it myself. And so I'm responsible for my own sin. The Bible says that we are responsible not for Adam's sin, but for our own. And the one who sins is the one who will die for his sins. But see, there's hope. In John chapter 5, Jesus expresses that there's hope for those who are dead. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come. It's right now when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It's come now. He's speaking spiritually spiritually. You can hear God's voice. We talk about it every Sunday. Hear God's voice. And if you respond to that voice, say yes to God, life starts to flow in you. And so when you hear his voice, in a sense, you're like Lazarus being called from your tomb. Come out. Come out. Come out from where you are. Step out in faith and trust the Lord. and You will find life. It's the Lord talking to you to raise you from the dead. Remember the story called the prodigal son, the the son who got a... Inheritance from his father, went out and spent it on wild living, paid for prostitutes, parties, and just got himself in a real bad mess. He decided he was going to go back home. He was going to work for his father and just be a servant on his farm. Yet when he came back home, his dad came running down the road, grabbed his son, hugged him, put a robe around him, slipped shoes on his feet and a ring on his finger and says, you are my son. You're welcome back in the family. And the son was overwhelmed. And the, dad, and the dad announced, my son was dead and has returned to life. Now, the boy wasn't physically dead, but relationally, yes, he was. He was dead. He was separated from his father. His father couldn't hug him. His father couldn't love him. His father couldn't bless him until he came back home. And the same is true for you and me. When we come back to God, that's called repentance. We turn back. We come back to God. God embraces us, welcomes us into his family and announces kind of in the same way. You who are dead have now come back to life. Jesus reaches down, saves us from spiritual death, and raises us to life. And here's the truth. Jesus didn't come to make us nicer people. I mean, that is a result of it. He came to make us alive. See, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. And nothing short of a spiritual resurrection can change the course of our lives. We don't need a patch here or there. We need something so radical it is pictured as a resurrection. So he came to save us from death. What else does Paul say in here? He says, um, remember how disobedient you were? Remember the way you used to live and how you used to walk and your, your way of life? He points out that there actually were three forces working against us, the ways of this world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and our own flesh. I want to take a look at each one of those because each one of those has a different slant on how they attack us. For example, there are the ways of the world, the ways of the world. When the the Bible talks about the world, that word can take on different meanings depending on the context. The world could be the physical earth, the mass of of dirt and water called the, the earth. That is the world. God made the world in six days. There's also the sense that the world is all the people on the globe, So, when we say, for God so loved the world, he's speaking of all the people. God so loved all the people of the world. But then, in this context, he's speaking of a system of thought, a way of living, patterns of thinking and acting that are contrary to God and, in fact, hostile to God. That is identified as the world. And we see this presented in the values of the media and Hollywood. We see this presented in the, the teachings of academia, especially at higher levels of education. We see this in the decisions our courts and our politicians make. Often things that do not glorify God at all, but push, push forth a different agenda. We, we have tried in our nation over the last several decades to nudge God out of the equation. We don't want him intervening. We, we believe God needs to be in this little box over here called Sunday Church, but he's not to spill over into, into public life or into, into school or art or any place else. And so we're trying to scrub God out, you know, whether it be on our coins, whether it be on our monuments, whether it be in the holidays that say Christmas, things like that. We're trying to get God out of the picture. But what you're left with when you take God out of the captain's seat is you put man in that seat. And is it any surprise that when we put man and put our faith and confidence in men that they fail us? We have politicians who, who have affairs and cheat on their wives and business owners that steal money from the company and all these things go on. Is it surprising at all to us? Man left to his own, even though he's made in God's image, will gradually drift toward the worldly mindset away from God. So we are warned as God is being squeezed out We're being being pressed to be squeezed into the mold of the world. We're told this, Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Don't conform to it. Don't don't modify your life to fit in with the world because the world's not going in a good direction. Another way we were disobedient is we were submitting to Satan. Now, I, I don't think there's anybody who would say, like, that was me. I was submitting to Satan. That was my choice. None of us do it consciously. It's more like by default. Because we say, God, I don't want to follow you. What we're actually saying is "Then I want to follow the other guy, Satan. When I reject God, there's only one other option. In fact, he is called the, the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He has a kingdom. He has a realm in which he has authority and power. And you're either of the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of, the, uh, of Satan. Jesus calls him the prince of this world. Paul, in another place, says he's the God of this age. He has some authority, some power. And whether it's willing or unwilling, when we, when we disobey God, we're actually obeying him. We're falling under his rulership in our lives. In 1 John 5.19, John writes that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. It's, it's almost like he's the, the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain pulling the levers and think about it. Who could convince us that, that killing the life that's growing inside of a mother's womb is a good thing? I mean, really think about that. I met a gal today, and they're, they're moving this week, and she's pregnant. She has a little baby inside of her. Abortion is a process of killing that baby. It's no, there's no sweet way to say it. It's not like a, removing a wart from the hand. It is a life that God allowed to... But yet in our culture, we've become numb to that because Satan's manipulated our thinking. How else could we take nutritious food, like potatoes, strip it of its most healthy part, fry it in oil, cover it with salt, and we have a delicious snack we crave... I mean, think of all the snacks and how the nutrients are actually taken out of the food they're made out of. And yet we, we feast on it and we have health problems, obesity and diabetes, all these things because of the diet, and yet Satan has convinced us that these things are good for us. I mean, Satan has a way of distorting things in, in, in the world. And so uh, there's, there's this voice that's twisting the truth and speaking lies and Jesus once encountered a group of religious men who claimed that they were followers of God because their lineage took them back to Abraham. He said, we're, we're of, the, of Abraham, and therefore Abraham's our father. And Jesus says, wait a minute. Your father isn't who you are biologically connected to. Your father is who you're listening to and following. So Jesus, in John chapter 8, says this to these guys. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. You've listened to his lies. You've bought them. Your loyalty is to him. Therefore, you're under his authority and power by choice. You've wanted that. Abraham's not your father. The devil is. And though we don't want to admit it, Paul is saying here is we all were there at one time. We all were there at one time. But he adds one other negative force, the flesh. He says, at one point we were following the desires of the flesh. Now, flesh can also have various meanings. It can mean the the skin and muscle that covers the bones. I remember a scene in the movie Monty Python and the Holy Grail when King Arthur's wanting to cross a bridge and the black knight meets him there and he won't budge. And so King Arthur takes off one arm, takes off the other arm, and says, okay, let me pass. And, and the dark knight says, it's merely a flesh wound. You know, it, it's, a, it's a wound. It's, it's, it's affected his physical body. That's the flesh, but... Paul uses it here to speak of something deeper. The flesh is the sinful nature that is opposed to God. That's what he's speaking of here, the flesh. It's when our good desires get distorted by the sinful nature within us. So we often think of fleshly desires as as food and sex and sleep and things like that. But those aren't sinful desires. Those are actually good desires. Do you know that God invented sex? God invented food? God gave us sleep as a good thing. These are all good but what happens is our sinful nature distorts them to where we think now, instead of just sleep, I love sleep and I become lazy or, or I, I don't just eat to live, I live to eat. I love food. I love to take in huge amounts of food. I'm a glutton now. That's a sin. You know, sex within the boundaries of, of marriage is a beautiful thing. God designed it, but outside of that, it's sinful. And so all these good desires get distorted by the sinful nature. Not only the the external things, it's the internal things. In fact, sometimes they are even worse. I, I, I meet people who early in their life dealt a lot with the physical issues, but later in life are dealing with the mental and emotional issues, things like anger, hatred, pride, jealousy. All these things that start to get inside of us and, and work against us, pull us away from the Lord. In Romans chapter 8, Paul describes this battle that goes on between the flesh and the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mindset on what the spirit desires. Two different ways to live. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God, God's law, nor can it do so. Think think of that last line. It cannot submit to God's law. cannot. It doesn't want to, but it can even if it wanted to. Because it's going down a different path. Your fleshly desires do not take you down a path that fulfills God's desires. Now, here's where we run into a lot of problems. Because these three forces, um, the world, the devil... And my own sinful desires, amazingly, all line up together. They all want to take me down the same direction. Do you ever notice that culture wants to affirm the worst things about you? Wants you to say yes to the things that you know God wouldn't want you to say yes to? The world is saying, that's acceptable. Satan says, go for it. And your body says, oh, it feels so good. And they're all taking you down the same direction. You've heard that a cord of three strands is not easily broken? These are three Cords of steel that are inescapable apart from the help of Christ. We get taken down this path, and this path is very dangerous, very dangerous. In fact, what I find is when we head down this path, it's like opening up Pandora's box. There's no end to it. Now, let me give you an example. For many years, people who had a different view of sexuality found comfort, actually found a community In the LGBT community. And I know that many churches and many, many um, people were very unkind, very, very unloving toward people who had different views of sexuality. And yet, in the last 10 years, we've watched this community expand in a really strange way. For example, it's no longer LGBT, but it's LGBTQ. I A P K. You think, what do all those things mean? Well, you can look these all up, but L is for lesbian, G is for gay, B is for bisexual, T is for transgendered, Q is for um, queer or questioning, I is for intersex, A is for asexual, uh, meaning you don't even desire sex, Um, P is for polygamous or polyamorous. Polyamorous is when you want to have a mate from both sexes. And then K is for kink or kinky, for all the kind of weird sexual practices, they want to be accepted in the same community as well. But here's the problem. You're going to see more and more letters added to that because once you take the fence down around where God said, hey, sex has a place, it's beautiful, but it has a place in the, in the boundaries of a committed marriage relationship. When you step outside of that, where, where's the fence? I mean, I mean, I ask you, when I listen to the news, when I hear people talk about this, I never hear anybody put a fence up anywhere. I don't hear anybody say that anything is wrong unless it's something with minors. It's because when you, take, when you take away God's standards, the only standard you have is human desire. And you cannot use human desire as a standard because I'll tell you what, if, if all of us did what we desired, I know a lot of married people who are very committed to their spouses. If they did what they desired, they would not be committed to their spouses Married people who are heterosexual deal with desires that they've got to rein in according to God's parameters. And so all of us deal with that. We deal with things with anger. Just because I feel angry doesn't mean God made me that way. I guess I should embrace it. I I have things about me, selfishness, greed. I don't embrace those things. I recognize those are part of my sinful nature. What you and I have to determine is what's part of my sinful nature. What doesn't line up with God's standards for me? And then bring my life in line with that. You won't hear about this lady on the news, but I encourage you to to look up. She's a beautiful um, African American hip hop artist named Jackie Hill Perry. She's from St. Louis. She gave her life to the Lord in the year 2008, and she has since married a man and become a mother. And there are many who who vilify this woman, saying that that she was a liar, she was a fake, or she's not really changed, she's masking who she really is. But God has really done a miracle in her life, and she has written um, a letter. It's called a love letter to a lesbian. And I want to share it with you because I want you to hear the heart of this woman and what she discovered. She says, dear lesbian, I just want you to know what I understand. I understand how it feels to be in love with a woman. To want nothing more than to be with her forever, feeling as if the universe has played a cruel joke on your heart by allowing it to fall into the hands of a creature that looks just like you. I, too, was a lesbian. And then she goes on and says, You see what God has to say about homosexuality, but your heart doesn't utter the same sentiments. God's word says it's sinful. Your heart says it feels right. God's word says it's abominable. Your heart says it's delightful. God's word says it's unnatural. Your heart says it's totally normal. Do you see that there's a clear divide between what God's word says and how your heart feels? So which voice will you believe? As I was praying and meditating on these things, she says, God put this impression on my heart. Jackie, you have to believe that my word is true even if it contradicts how you feel. Wow, she said, this is right. Either I trust in his word or I trust my own feelings. Either I look to him for my pleasure my soul craves, or I search for it in lesser things. Either I walk in obedience to what he says, or I reject his truth as if it were a lie. The struggle with homosexuality is a battle of faith. Is God my joy? Is he good enough? Or am I still looking to broken cisterns to quench a thirst only he can satisfy? That is the battle for me, and it is for you. If lasting love is what you're looking for, anywhere else you are chasing the wind, seeking what you will find nowhere else, slowly being destroyed by your pursuit. But in Jesus, there is fullness of joy. In Jesus, there is a relationship worth everything because he is everything. And then she ends with these words, run to him. Run to him. See, Jesus' power reaches down into our lives. Every one of us have lived lives of disobedience. And he says, remember where you were when he reached you. Not when you were for God. Actually, when you were against God, he reached out. His power found you there and lifted you up. And then he goes on to say one other thing. Remember how doomed I was. Remember how doomed I was when I was apart from Jesus. He says, like the rest, we were like, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Like the rest. He's saying all of us. We're not talking about the, the down-and-outers, the criminals, the, the, the perverts on the streets. He, he says all of us, we're like them, all of us, deserving of wrath. Now, what does that mean, deserving of wrath? That's an unpleasant word. When we think of wrath, we think of someone blowing their gasket and just having this temper tantrum. Now, that, that's, a, that's an exaggeration of wrath. God's wrath is a righteous indignation against sin. It is... God's justice punishing sin. We love the fact that God is love. We love that he's gracious. We love that God accepts us. We love all that part of God, but it's equal that God is both loving and just. And honestly, I think we appreciate that. Don't you like the fact that one day all the, rights will, all the wrongs will be made right? That all the evil will be paid back, that God's gonna take care of things we don't have to? All those things that slip through the cracks in this life where people don't get caught, God's gonna take care of that? I like that. I, I like that I can just trust God's going to work that out with those, those criminals and those politicians, those wicked people. What I don't like is when I think about wrath toward me, a sinner. I, I don't like the thought of that, that God is angry at me because of my sin. But the more I think about sin, the more it makes sense. Think about it. God made me. God is way up here. He made me down here to be dependent on him. And along the way, I said, God, I don't want you. I want Satan. I want to follow what my heart wants. I don't want you. I want to do what everyone else is doing. And God says, really? Really? After I made you like me? After I put you on this place? After I miraculously knit you together in your mother's womb and that's what I get? Yeah, God, that's what you get. And what's more, I'm not even going to honor you. I'm not even going to attempt to honor you. It's like we're spitting in his face. Sin is very personal to God. It's not like we just broke some rules. It's, 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 we're telling God we don't love him. We don't owe him anything. And wait a minute. Where'd you come from? where did I come from? I owe God everything. I owe him everything. And so God is just in saying, you will suffer punishment, consequences for your rebellion. And so the Bible talks about the wrath to come. And you can read in the Bible, this picture of wrath to come is judgment, it's fire, it's, it's doom and gloom, it's not pretty, and it's very dark, and God doesn't want anyone to go there, because God has provided a way out through Jesus Christ. But it is coming, and you and I need to know, it is coming one day. So Paul reminds the, the church in Colossae, when he writes to them in the third chapter of Colossians, put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly natures, the flesh, Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires and greed, which is idolatry, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Disobedience leads to wrath. But God did something. He sent Jesus to save us from the wrath to come, from the doom that's to come. In John three sixteen, we read that God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Later in that chapter, Jesus said this, 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. It's as if God's wrath is already on all of us because of sin. And unless you accept Jesus, it remains on you. So he says, I've given you the life preserver. Grab it. I've given you an escape hatch. Take it. Come out from where you are. Let me reach down and grab you where you are and lift you to a better place. And we can do that through faith, accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior. He not only will forgive you, which is a present thing, he will save you from what's to come. So Romans chapter five, verse nine says, since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And the reason is because when Jesus died on that cross, he suffered the wrath of God in your place, in my place, so we don't have to. You know, this summer, there was a really great picture of what happened on the cross through the fires that were in Northern California. On October 8th, a couple, older couple, retired, John and Jan Pasco, were watching the hills and and, and saw in a distance that there were fires and smoke, but thought it was was a long way off from them, and that night, peacefully went to bed. But around midnight, they got a call from their daughter saying, please, Mom and Dad, get out of there. Get out of that place, it's scary. So um, they decided to honor their daughter they loaded some stuff up in their vehicles, grabbed their pets, and began to drive. But they didn't, get, they didn't even get a half mile down the road when they, when they came across a wall of fire that they couldn't pass. So they actually had to come back home. And then they realized that they had no place to turn. They were trapped. Their, their house was going to burn down. And they so said they couldn't stay in their house. But how would they save their lives? And they looked over into their neighbor's yard, and they saw their swimming pool. So it was after midnight. The air was kind of chilly. Fully clothed, they walked, stepped inside their neighbor's pool. And they held each other and they cried. And they watched the fire climb up the hill, break and burn all the trees around them, burn their neighbor's house down, burn their house down. They had to, they had to shield themselves from, from ash falling on that, on that little pool they were in. But you know what? When the sun came up that morning, they were cold, they were wet, but they were alive. Everything else around them. Look at this picture here. This is the picture Everything else around them, gone. And the only reason they were saved was because they were in that pool. What the whole message of this chapter, we'll get into more next week, when we talk about what God did, is that when you're in Christ, you're in the safe place. The wrath of God will not touch anyone who is in Christ. And in a sense, you have a picture of that. When someone's baptized, you're baptized into Christ. Christ. The wrath of God will not touch you. Sin's been covered. It's already been paid for. You're protected. Are you protected? Do you know what Jesus came to save you from? He came to save you from from the deadness in your life. He came to save you from this pattern of disobedience, but ultimately came to save you from the doom, the wrath that is to come. Jesus came to reach down and rescue us where we are, and he's here today to rescue you.